My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a former Navy SEAL who has since leaving the military and private contract working has dedicated himself to a whole new cause to fight for, veteran law enforcement and first responder suicides. This guest has seen his share of action in Africa, Oman, Kuwait, and Iraq, and of course, all the injuries, PTS, TBIs, and insomnia that go along with it. This guest continued to take the fight to the enemy after leaving the service by working private contract gigs with Triple Canopy and the Trident Group Incorporated. All of this work took its toll on my guest. Along with extreme back problems and a slew of injuries, my guest was having migraines so frequently that he had to move around in almost complete darkness to function. Add addiction to pain medication and alcohol, which resulted in a recipe for disaster that led him down a dark path. Knowing that he could not live like this, my guest looked into and started using a ton of alternative therapies to include hyperbaric oxygen therapy, plant medicine, and the stellate ganglion block. My guest is now lighting the path for fellow veterans so that they can see a brighter future for themselves and their families. And if that's not enough, he's also the owner and CEO of Hill Country Boards. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Johnny Sateo. What's going on, my friend? How are you doing, brother? Thank you once again for having me on. I appreciate this huge opportunity. Um, you know, our fellow brother Mac from Mac Belts reached out what a couple of months ago and said, "Hey, you really got to hook up with DJ on his podcast because what you're doing uh, will probably help a lot of people out there that are listening to his podcast." Yeah, I uh, I think so. And Mac is a great guy. I just talked to him like two days ago. Um, uh, him and, uh, Dave and all those guys have really come together to try and figure out a better way for veterans, law enforcement, first responders that are just kind of trying to figure out, you know, how to make it in this world after they leave that life of service. Um, with you, there's a lot of stuff and you've taken a couple different routes in your life that, that people would kind of believe and not kind of believe and what I mean by that is you weren't set for the SEALs in the first place. You were going to go to college on a scholarship. Like your academics were fantastic in school. So can we talk about that first? Yeah, definitely, DJ. You know, I, I was I had my mindset on going to University of Texas on an academic scholarship. Uh, my best friend from high school, which we'll talk about here in a second, his parents were trying to recruit me to go to Princeton. Um I, I was looking at MIT, um, if you can believe that. I mean, I, I was pretty blessed in school. And I think you heard our, my other podcast with my close Ranger brother, Greg Anderson. Like, I was blessed, man, from the time I was a really, really young kiddo, uh, getting a scholarship to go to St. Helena's in Bernie, where we grew up with all of our childhood friends, to 
I mean, I was just going to go to Texas, probably do chemical engineering because I loved chemistry at the time. And then <laughs> it's just crazy. You know, my best friend from high school and uh, R. Kelly, who just retired as a Green Beret Lieutenant Colonel after just shy of 21 years, you know, he talked me into becoming a SEAL. And uh, for me, it was a new challenge. We had had a SEAL in Bernie that I knew about. He was a Vietnam SEAL. He had got shot up and it was one of our older classmates' dad. And uh, Mr. Prokacic grew up with our dad and Bernie. They had been, they're one of the older Bernie families as well. So, you know, I didn't think much of it. And then my grandfather, Johnny, served during World War II overseas as well. And then our dad is a Vietnam era veteran. He never served in country in Vietnam, but supported from Guam. So, uh, you know, when R. Kelly came to me with this idea. I was like, you're freaking nuts, man. And then we started looking into it and started training. I said, all right, I'm in. You know what? I'm kind of over school. I want a new challenge. Well, I want to point out a couple things. One, this is not the R. Kelly that he's talking about that uh, went to prison recently. Uh, this is a completely <laughs> different one. Number two, correct. Correct, number two, sir. I want to know, though, with the Navy SEALs, because he went Green Beret, was it because of that movie that came out? Because I'm telling you, when I saw that movie, because I think we're right about the same age, man. When I saw right. that movie, I thought that was like the greatest thing ever. Yeah, that's what fired him up. And then, you know, I tutored him and a bunch of our other close childhood friends so they could pass their classes and still play football so we could win football games because Friday Night Lights in Texas <laughs> – is a right. real thing and i right. tell you what uh, i believe it's peter berg that produced the uh the movie and he hit it out of the park i mean that's that's how it is back home i mean football is religion to us growing up i mean we start playing football at like five years old flag football full helmets pads hitting each other and then we move into uh before middle school you get into tackle football so, you know, that's 13 straight years of playing football from little league to high school. And uh, that really was my passion. And I was going to try to walk on UT's team and uh, see if I could make it, you know. And I thought I was good enough to, you know, get up to UT on an academic scholarship and try to walk on the team. So, but that obviously my path went completely opposite directions. Now, speaking about your childhood, I want to talk about a couple of certain people in your childhood. Um, it wasn't an easy going for you. Now you talk about, you did great in school. You were looking at a scholarship for college. You had people kind of looking at you. You thought you might walk on for football, but all was not great on the front at home. Uh, there was a lot of stuff going on. So can first, I want to talk about your relationship with your parents, with your siblings, and then I'm going to talk about a couple other relatives that you had. Definitely. Yeah, we grew up, uh, you know, our family's been in Bernie, Texas. I just found out recently since the eight, late 1800s, uh, immigrating there from Zacatecas, Mexico, and then the other side of our family from the San Antonio area. And they had gotten there about 40 or 50 years after all the German families came over on the ships from Germany. 
and settled all the Texas Hill Country. So, you know, our family has been known for being partiers and drinkers, but with all that, it was learned behavior, like from my grandfather, my great-grandfather, working hard, but drinking, uh, you know, physical family abuse and psychological and emotional abuse has, was rampant in our family. Like my grandpa, Johnny, used to physically and emotionally and verbally abuse my grandmother, my dad's mom. And then, uh, you know, that trickled down to our father, who was a, a severe alcoholic, just beer, but he would come home and, you know, he and mom would get in a fight and he would beat the living shit out of her like she was a man. I mean, to the point where her eyes were cut up, face was bloody. Um, and it, it was one of those things, you know, he didn't break the cycle. He chose to continue it. So for me and my siblings, that was our, that's always been our first layer of post-traumatic stress and trauma. And the reason I bring that up is because you, you spoke specifically about breaking the cycle and, and getting a new path kind of in life. Now you and your siblings have, have pretty much done that, but what was it about this that broke the cycle from those other two generations to yours that made you go, it's not the right way. We need to put this in. And then I want to know kind of as a kid, what you're doing, looking at this and seeing this on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Yeah, it was definitely weekly for several years. And, you know, my siblings were pretty young, like three or two to four to five years old. And then I was about seven. So you can imagine a seven-year-old, eight-year-old trying to stand up to a man and uh, fight him off your mother, you know? So at that, don't get me wrong, we are just savages in our family and we like to drink or we used to like to drink and fight bar fights, fighting internally each other, you know, people would have too many drinks. And uh, even when I was young, I said, I don't want to beat my wife up or my girlfriend or my fiance, and it was one of those things. And don't get me wrong, I'm not perfect, but I don't come home every day and get on the bottle like, or you know, drink beer like our father did and get into arguments with the mother of my child and start beating her. That, you know, that wasn't, actually, <laughs> it's ironic. I had a very turbulent relationship with the mother of my child for several years to the point where she attacked me multiple times. I had sent her to jail for attacking me one of the times um, and a bunch of other stuff happened. And that was probably, that was back in 2016 when it was very, very chaotic, toxic. And my daughter was only what, five at the time, five and a half, six. But uh, you know, seeing that and experiencing that and going, you know, everybody's probably hearing this or they heard the other podcasts I've done, you know, big, big, bad Navy SEAL is getting emotionally, physically, and um, mentally attacked, you know, but it happens. And that's the reality of what happened right now. We have a decent relationship. We co-parent pretty good. 
but it took years and years and years and court dates and her going to jail to finally like have the dust settle and have some peace. Well, do you think that the childhood, we know that it led you down the path where you said, I'm not going to beat my spouse. I'm not going to do things like that. But do you also think that that led you down the path of being the protector because at such a young age, you kind of had to be. Absolutely. 100%. And I, you know, I've spoken that about that before, you know, I, with some of these therapies, it opens you up. And then you like myself personally, I realize like I have always been that protector since I was a young, young, young kid. And you know what? Like, I don't, I don't even know kind of what being a full kid was to be honest with you, you know, and my siblings, they remember most of it, but when you're the oldest and you're, trying to protect your mother from these beatings and you know at the time and I know we're going to talk to talk about her one of our aunts and her girlfriend lived with us and when you're standing toe-to-toe with a family member trying to protect your mother and your kids I mean that's it it's a heavy load you know what I mean that's a heavy rucksack to carry absolutely we lead that to this though being thrust upon so young to be the protector, do you ever look back and are you angry about it at all? When you look back on it, that you, because like you just said, you never even really got to see what it was fully like to be a kid. So as you go through these therapies and you get this view from way back, do you resent it? Do you, are you a little angry about it now? I think it, I, I don't think I was angry about it most of my life. I just didn't know different and I just was in survival mode. We all were, you know, when you're in a, a home environment that is so toxic and brutal, and I'll give you an example. I had this conversation with my aunt and uncle, uh, back home in Bernie, probably about a month ago. And we were talking about my father, our father. And she goes, you know, the way your dad would speak to you guys, like he would call us the boys. He'd be like, you little motherfuckers. You know, we're like three, four, five, six, seven years old, you know? And I could never imagine saying that to my daughter when she was that age or even now, like you stupid little bitch. I could never imagine myself saying that to my daughter right now. You know right. what I mean? So, yeah. but I did, you know, that rage came out in so many ways um, just because it, it builds up inside of you and it's deep in your soul. Uh, and it's a combination of being that protector, but also having that rage because it's almost like learned behavior, right? Absolutely. So doing all these therapies was so freeing for me and just gave me a lot of uh, perspective and being able to forgive myself, forgive our father, forgive the situation and say, you know what? He could have been a better man, but he didn't. He learned the way I was learning, but I chose a different path. 
when you look back on it, were you ever in trouble in school or anything? We know you did good academically, but were you ever in trouble for fights or anything like that? Were you, you know, anything like that? Or was it all just kind of pent up in you? Yeah, it was all pent up. And, you know, I my release was sports and working. So if I wasn't playing sports, I was working. I was cutting yards, uh, doing landscaping, painting, uh, doing two days, getting in the gym, but, uh, sports, especially football. So I played football, played basketball, ran track from junior high, you know, middle school all the way up to my senior year. And it was just, you know, that was my outlet. And it was kind of like my safe space, if you want to call it that. But uh, I was always on the go, always working, always playing sports. And it, it was a great outlet. And what's funny is like my younger brothers both dropped out of high school at 16 and they're only a year apart. Well, I would get called in to our vice principal and our principal's office because <laughs> our principal, Sam Champion, grew up with our dad and our uncles and our cousins in Bernie. So they would get ready to call my parents, but they would call me over the loudspeaker. Johnny Sotelo, please come to the principal's office or vice principal's office. I'm like, God damn it. What do these little fuckers do now? You know what I <laughs> literally like I had to be a parent. Right. In high school. And, and that's the whole, that's why I ask when you look back on that, you've been an adult since you were young. Like at, at what point do you go, man, I just want to break from being an adult for a while because you've pretty much been doing it your whole life. Right. Yeah. I, I, there's never been a break, to be honest with you, DJ. It just, I just put my head down and handled it, you know, and uh, our mom decided to divorce dad when I was 16. So I think it was my sophomore or the start of my junior year. And uh, we moved out of the house, left him there, moved into a single white trailer behind this old bar that used to be there back back home in town called the raccoon saloon and it was you can't even make this up bro well that's I what mean, i was about to say it sounds like a real <laughs> upper crust joint <laughs> oh yeah and uh we were friends with the owner but he rented this single white trailer to us so we, mom and our sister would sleep in the master i had my own bedroom and then my brother shared a room but it was it was not <laughs> It was not a nice trailer. Like we had a, a hole in the kitchen floor. So when it rained, like we just put a piece of plywood over it. Right. But when it rained with our internal family joke, we called it the shrimp boat. Cause when we get torrential down downpours back home, the <laughs> yeah. water would come all the way up to the door. I mean, we're talking like a foot and a half, two feet of water and we could lift up that board and freaking see the water just rushing underneath the trailer. But every, it's crazy. We were poor, but all of our high school friends would always come over and we'd get beer and drink. It was the spot, right, for all of our friends. And even our friends that would get in trouble and get kicked out with their parents, they'd come to our mansion of a freaking single wide trailer, you know? <laughs> but um, but, it, it, but it goes to show you, and I think that – 
that went through in your career, that that brotherhood, that love for close-knit family. Like, you take care of each other no matter what. Would you say that that's still what you're doing today? Absolutely. Absolutely. And when we got into that, into the shrimp boat, um, I was working at Walmart overnight. I was still going to school, playing sports. And uh, that year, I just ended up playing football because – um, you know, mom's like, Hey, we got to move out. I'm going to need your help. So I was helping her pay the rent and all the bills. So, and, uh, I was doing my thing, man, just trying to figure out what I was going to do by my senior year. And we just talked about it. I bypassed college because of old R Kelly and, uh, went straight into the military. Did you just want a way out? Was that what you were looking for just to get out of there for a while? I did, but at the same time, school, I felt I needed a new challenge, you know, because I was crushing school, even with working all night. You know, when I graduated, I had a, a 4.0 and um, I, I graduated number 11. So in my class, and it was just one of those things. I was like, you know what? I'm kind of right. over school. And if anybody's going to become a Navy SEAL, it's going to be him and me, right? for the current times and uh, that I got fired up and started training. I, I mean, it turned out well. Now you mentioned an aunt, but she wasn't really known by aunt. She was known by uncle O. That's uh, right. He's our, yeah. So let's, uh, let's talk about uncle O. Right. So she lived with us for a bit when all, you know, all the, uh, the fighting, the physical abuse to her mother, um, by default, I would take take some hits trying to protect her. But our aunt, Ogie, which we call her uncle internally, she's a lesbian. She's been a lesbian a long time. Her and her girlfriend were living with us at the time. And she would go toe-to-toe -to -toe with our dad. And uh, I would try to help her beat him off our mom, you know. And you could imagine the chaos with my younger siblings right behind us screaming crying saying don't stop i mean talk about an alcohol fueled toxic um just emotionally mentally and psychologically draining environment you know what i mean and she did it and I, i'll always love that woman she is ve i'm very very close with her and uh she's still you know she's always been one of my our mother's closest sisters and they help each other out a lot because our mom's got some health issues right now. Nothing serious yet, but she's always been there. It's, it's interesting to see who kind of comes in and fills those voids and, and you hear it differently from everybody who fills those voids in. Um, and it seems like even though there was so much chaos it almost seems like you were in the eye of the storm almost because you right. kept focus on what you needed to do. And that's what was interesting to me about your story was all of this stuff is going on in all these peripherals around you. And you're still going, do I go to college? Do I do this? Do I do my homework? And, and it was just by the numbers, one, two, three, four, that you did what you needed to do, moved on to where you needed to go and become ultimately very successful in it. Yeah, you know, it was a running joke between my little brothers before they both uh, dropped out of high school. I, I didn't believe I was so busy with sports and work 
Um, and at that point, you know, helping mom with the bills, all the bills, um, I didn't, I didn't have time to take schoolwork home to have homework. So any minute, every break, every lunch period, anytime I had those, I was knocking out every homework assignment report, you name it, unless it was a really big project. Um, I didn't take any work home. Uh, homework. It was all for day to day, Monday through Friday. And uh, it just, it was the what, what I needed to do to make my schedule work um, between sports and work and paying the bills and all that business. With talking about everyone now, your brother, it should be pointed out is also a Navy SEAL. He is. He's currently on active duty. He'll retire next year after 23 years. In the and team. so it seems like everything turned out okay. Was that because your mother was kind of a rudder during the whole thing? Because we don't talk about it a lot, but was did she keep you guys kind of on point too as a parent, or was that not there either? That wasn't there at all. You know, um, once I left and joined the Navy and went straight to Bud's, she lost all control of those little SOBs, you know, <laughs> The second oldest brother, who's not a SEAL, he's a contractor, a construction contractor. He quit, started working. Um, and then shortly after that, my brother that's getting ready to retire <laughs> next year from the SEAL teams, he quit high school as well, started working. Um, you know, there was a point where he was so lost. Um, he told me, he was like, man, I think I'm going to join the Navy and become a SEAL like you. So I wrote him a letter and I said, I sent it to him in boot camp and I sent him my original, our gold trident we wear on our uniform, our dress uniforms. Um, I sent it to him with a letter and pendant. I, was, I don't have the original letter he does, but he has that trident and he still wears it on his uniform. And I said, don't touch this. Don't take it off the letter base, basically. And I said, if you're truly going to earn this, then you'll be able to wear it on your one of your uniforms one day. And he still has it, but uh, he was in a bad space. I mean, he was making a shit ton of bad decisions. Mom would call me upset. I'm like, what the hell? And then finally he figured out he was going to end up in jail or prison if he didn't change his way. Well, let me ask you something. And it's something that I've kind of hit on with other guests and stuff, but I want kind of your opinion. What do you think it is about the military? Uh, and, and we can go, you know, big army, big Navy, and all break it down all the way to special operations. What is it that gets those guys that just have no focus, no path in life? What, makes them lock down and become some of the best soldiers there are. Because if you look at it on the flip side of the coin, we look at someone like you straight A's 4.0 knew what you were going to do. And you both turned out doing the exact same job. What is it about the military that changes these young uh, minds and gets them going in the right direction? Because I believe that if I wouldn't have joined the military, I would have made all kinds of bad decisions too. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, with him, I think, a lot of his friends were getting in trouble for, you know, dealing drugs and going to jail. And, uh, he finally decided like, I gotta, I gotta get away from this. 
and I got to change my life, which, you know, I'm incredibly proud because that at that time and period, there was no way I was like, he's not going to make it. I don't, I don't think he's strong enough, but then he joined, went to boot camp, went to a school and I said, all right, he's, he's on the path. And then when he checked into buds, I said, look, I go, little bro, this is like being back home in Bernie. I've been out here in Coronado long enough and you're in buds with a lot of my boys. I graduated seal training with like, I kind of know everybody now since I've been out here because it's Coronado is so small and the SEAL teams are so small and sure as hell, you know, he'd be running with his class and my boys would be driving by and they knew he was in training in a class and they'd be like, Satello. And he'd be like, ah, punching over, trying to hide from him. But there was no hiding. I mean, everybody knew he was there, knew who he was. So it was a foregone conclusion. He got some incredible tough love, but I'll, I'll give it to him, especially during Hell Week. I got to secure him from Hell Week with a bunch of my boys that were instructors over at Bud's. And uh, they all came up to me. They said, we put a hurting on him and uh, he's a tough little SOB. I said, good, that's what he needed. And, um, you know, he started his SEAL team career there. So. Now, did you guys ever serve directly with each other? No. Um, actually, when when he graduated BUDS, I had already gotten back from Iraq, and I was at our advanced training command back in 2003. But we did end up working right down the road from each other. So I went back to Iraq, to Baghdad, over by Baghdad International Airport, and their um, compound was right down the road at Camp Victory. So we got to link up overseas, which was freaking awesome. Um, at that time, I had a small group of other very close SEAL team brothers with me, a couple of Green Berets, a couple of Rangers that we were all working together in a contract. So we went over and got to visit with them and it was his first pump out to Iraq and they were already prepping to go on a couple of combat operations that first day I saw him. So it was kind of cool, but I'll tell you what, it gave our parents a shit ton of gray hair. Well, and that's what I was about to ask. Does it change for you? You know, you've already seen it. You know, everything that happens out there. Does it change the battle space for you knowing your little brothers out there now? No, cause I, I knew his leadership cause I was friends with them and we, very close to the same generations, if not the same. So I knew he was in good hands and uh, they were teaching him everything he needed to know to be a badass frogman. So. Well, let's talk about your career a little bit because you, you did some interesting things. I want to talk about first you being a lead climber and uh, yes, all of the boat operations that you were doing. And then as, as it comes kind of full circle, as you contract, you take over like a Somali pirate team uh, that's, that's right. working out there. So let's talk about first you being a lead climber, what that means, what you're doing, and then kind of where you're at in the world and where we're at like, kind of geopolitically when you're doing it. Right. So as a new guy, I was a 60 gunner. I carried the 60 with a couple of other of my boys, but I've always loved to climb. So 
even being a 60 gunner, they had me become lead climber because we did a couple of climbing courses in California. And they're like, dude, do you, you can climb up that freaking caving ladder pretty fast. So by default, myself and a couple other of my close SEAL team brothers that were in my platoon, we became lead climbers for the platoon, which, you know, in essence, it's funny because that's how the Somali pirates were taking down all these merchant marine ships, all those civilian ships that they were holding hostage. They used the same exact uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures and SOPs. You know, they didn't have our really nice 11 meter ribs with the 50 cals mounted up front or the 40 Mike Mike machine gun up front, but they pulled up on those skiffs and tossed those caving ladders up just like we did and climbed right up. And you can imagine they're malnourished, but they're all high on pot, right? So they're light and they would climb up these ships in like a freaking heartbeat. And I've heard that the ships they were on were pieces of shit that they were on trying to run up alongside these. So oh, yeah. what what do you think gave them a, a kind of the advantage or the jump on these marine ships? Was it they just weren't looking for them? They, they're not paying attention? What is it that when this first happened and it was so bad, what gave them kind of the upper hand on that? Well, in the uh, straight up, uh, as you come down south through the Red Sea and you get into the uh, – straight of Baba Mandeb, that you can see four or five countries. It is incredibly narrow. So, you know, um, international law of the ocean and sea, you have 12 miles. I mean, they only had a few nautical miles to get back into Somalia, right? International water, by international water standards, uh, Eritrea, uh, what a, Yemen, so they could go hit a ship and get it to one of these ports pretty freaking fast. They didn't have to go 20, 30, 50, or 100, or 150 nautical miles. It was pretty immediate. Once once they took down a ship, they'd have it back in Somalia in a heartbeat. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so if you ever look at a map where Bob Al-Mandeb is, it's tight. I mean, you can see land almost 360 degrees. Yeah. Well, that would uh, so make for a very quick boat. getaway. So right. what are we talking about? A normal, if they take over a ship, a normal operation, how long is that taken? Uh, for them? Yeah. I mean, depends on how fast that ship would go. But I'm, I'm talking maybe a few hours. Really? And you know, the combined task force out of Bahrain, they would patrol these waters. So if you didn't have some type of maritime security like us on board, or if you didn't have um, engines that could really get you going to 20 to 25 knots, they would hit the low and slow or the unarmed vessels that didn't have protection. And- so People would, they'd be stretched out because the uh, combined task force 51 would escort everyone getting to a rally point at a certain time. But if you didn't have maritime security on board or if you were low and slow, you were a wounded gazelle out there. Yeah. 
So let, let's talk about an actual operation that you're on and, and what it went through, because I heard you talk about this before, and it seems like the weight of the world is kind of on your shoulders being the lead climber, because everything that happens from the bottom up and from the top down is counting on your eyes and ears. Correct. So, you know, the first appointment was pretty busy. Uh, we got back from that. 9-11 happened. We thought we were going to redeploy out the door uh, with Team 3. And by default, all the boys were coming out of the woodworks, right? Everybody was upset, hurt, angry, just all these mix of emotions from, you know, us losing so many innocent lives during the Twin Tower attacks, the Pentagon, um, the, the plane crash in Pennsylvania, United 93. I'll tell you what, by the time we got the call, I saw the second plane go down because my ex-girlfriend had called me and her family was from New York. She's like, Johnny, you got to put the TV on. A plane just crashed into the, one of the towers. And I said, hey, call your family. I'm going to turn the TV on. I turned it on and a few minutes later, we got calls from our chief saying, hey, we're not unpacking our pallets. Stand by. We're getting word on what we're going to do. You know, within an hour or two, we knew we were attacked. Um, and because so many of our guys were coming up from our training commands, they were plussing up all the platoons and the troops. They said, hey, guys, you guys just got back from a long deployment doing some good work. You guys are going to stay back. And I was like, what in the holy hell? So I was like kind of trying to pimp myself out to all my buddies that were LPOs and chiefs <laughs> and officer in charge, charge of platoons saying, hey, man, I'm ready to go. We just got back. I'm, I'm sharp as a razor. I'm ready to get after it and fucking get payback and go hunt these fucking savages that attacked us. So it didn't work out. You know, I, it was something way out of my control. Uh, had one or two of the guys got injured before everybody deployed, I would have been able to backfill a spot, but I was fired up. So I missed the um, Afghanistan invasion, never made it to Afghanistan, but it ended up during our second deployment was when we were taking down eight to 10 Iraqi ships a night, you know, Sadat, we were enforcing the UN sanctions on Saddam. So we got word that we were going to go into Iraq. And during all this time, we were training, but we were also taking down all of his ships that were smuggling everything you could think of. And that's when I was really locked on on being a lead climber. You know, we were taking down so many ships. It was like breathing and it was just second nature to me by that time. And getting that caving ladder with a good hook and getting up and clearing that deck space, making sure there's no booger eaters up there um, waiting to ambush us or shoot us. I, myself and my number two guy always carried that responsibility and we get up top, clear it and the platoon would haul ass up top. And then as soon as I got four to five guys, we'd go straight to the bridge and take it down and let the uh, rest of the platoon get up on the deck and follow us in a little bit delayed, but we were so 
um, efficient and good at taking down ships by this time. It was everybody knew their role and uh, we did it really, really fast. Well, and let's point out, because it's not something to just brush over. When you clear that original, as you're coming over the rail clearing, you just got a pistol in your hand. That's all you're doing to clear it, right? Right. Correct. We had MP5s at the time, but they were, we had them hooked on our gear, you know, because if you're trying to climb with an MP5, right. it's a short show. So my gear was always tight. Um, I'd get up as soon as either myself or my number two guy gave the thumbs up over the rail, um, I'd get my MP5 out ASAP and uh, we'd start moving. And I'd just now, hold security there, look at, I'd hold security there, just looking at the bridge, at the doors coming out of the bridge, ready to, you know, blast whoever was coming out if they had weapons or even a rocket, explosive. Yeah, and I've heard you talk about this, that, that you say that, they're stable platforms. These huge ships are super stable, but the problem with them are is anywhere you're shooting from a advantage position, it's fish in a barrel. So you guys are behind the power curve the entire time until you're up on the bridge. Correct. That's correct. But that's the beauty of us working at night and knowing, you know, those big ships so well, you know, our boat guys would be on NBGs, get us up there. You know, I didn't need MVGs cause we're going up on the ship. And then once we took it down, we turned some lights on, but we're just working off the ambient moonlight or if it was dark, we knew where we were going. And some of these ships had passive countermeasures where they would cut off the uh, ladder wells from each deck level going up to the bridge to get into the bridge. So we would just climb like spider monkeys and get our asses up there. Uh, I mean, they even had opposing sliding doors filled with sand because they would try to kill our exothermic breaching torches. But we always found our way in, whether it was like spider monkeys over the the bridge face, you know, breaking out windows and swinging in like freaking Spider-Man. Um, we always found a way in. At this point in your career, in your life, uh, can you imagine it going any better right now? Current, presently? No, no, no. A, oh, as you're doing I'm, these, yeah. Are, no, are you thinking like, man, it doesn't get better than this? Yeah, we were moving and shaking. We had uh, parts of our team in Afghanistan. So we knew those boys were getting after it. It would have been kind of nice to do a little switcheroo and get some guys out, some trigger time in Afghanistan, but it just didn't work out. So you know, but it was, it was good. And we were ready to go because they almost plussed us up in Afghanistan. Um, part of our team that was out there. So, you know, it didn't, once again, you have no control over that. And that's all the head shit at that really, really high level. You know, the, all the generals, admirals are talking. And, uh, once Iraq was on the table, Afghanistan wasn't even a thought. And then we started prepping for the invasion. The reason I asked that question is because, as we all know, you've already said that childhood is that first layer of PTS. There's PTS going on right now. You're doing 12, 13 takedowns a night. There's no sleep. There's constant action. There's constant where you're running in the red, all that kind of stuff. 
So when I ask that, it's to set up for later on because I think it's important to know that you think everything is great, but all of the kind of cracks in the walls are starting to happen. And I would like you to talk a little bit about that now, not necessarily from the viewpoint of when you were there, now that you have some time to look back on it and see where those first cracks started happening. I, you know, I was, I had this conversation the other day with a close buddy of mine, um, talking about traumatic brain injury. So obviously our, myself and my siblings have our layer of PTS from our childhood. Um, but growing up, like I said, playing football, there was only about a year gap that my brain got a chance to relax between playing football for 13 years and then joining the Navy, going to a quick A school and then going directly to BUDS. Cause you know, we start doing explosive work in third phase of BUDS. So I've maybe had eight months, nine months where my brain wasn't getting knocked around by a helmet. And then you're throwing, you know, heavy weapons because the invisible response from uh, the barrels will do a number on you as well. You know what I mean? It's all those micro TBIs per se, but uh, I was dealing with headaches at that time. Now looking back from doing all of our explosive breaching, all of our heavy weapons, you know, whether it was the 50 cal or the 40 Mike Mike um, Mark 19 machine gun, I, even our saws, when you have that, when you're shooting that many rounds and you're that close to each other, I mean, I'd get off the range. My brain would just be, just my brain and my head would just be ringing. Even having ear pro in, and then the times ear pro falls out when you're shooting and moving and communicating, I mean, your brain's taking heavy. So I think at that time, in, back in 02, pre Iraq, and then 03, getting ready for Iraq and then Iraq, I was dealing more with traumatic brain injury issues uh, more than I was with post-traumatic stress. A second layer to put on that too is when you're dealing with those things, one, you're not seeing them because you're there at that moment. You're not seeing them, but you also don't deal with them. So you're going right back out on missions, going right back into the fray and your brain, like you said, never gets time to settle. Looking around in what you saw then, what you see now, now that we've been at war for a little over 20 years and we've done all these things, do you see an op-tempo uh, ever, did it ever slow down while you were there or even after you left up until recently? I mean, I, you know, after we got back from Iraq, my op tempo kind of stayed the same because when I went to our advanced training command, I was putting our guys through Iraq scenarios, Afghanistan scenarios. I was running our explosive breaching, um, some of those, you know, small arms ranges, uh, getting platoons and troops ready to go out the door. So that op tempo never stopped. And then when I started contracting, it just it just kept on going. Cause I was like, I'm going to get back overseas, work with my boys, make some really, really good money, but still being part of the fight in Iraq. And, you know, there was not much of a break there, you know, to be honest with you, if you look back at the last 20, 25 years of my life, even contracting, I was always on the go back in the States, back overseas. 
And it was just like this vicious cycle because I was doing good work with my guys that I was working with them, the teams I was with on contracts, but it, it was just nonstop. It was constant travel and stress on the job. Um, just grinding it out, you know? Now, not only that, but you also have family to deal with a, a wife that you have to deal with. Um, and I guess at this time you already have your child, right? I did shoot. So yeah. we had my daughter July of 2010 and I, sh uh, started the Somali pirate anti-piracy contract. Uh, what was it? I believe it was January of 2011. And, uh, I started, I would do a month to two months overseas month back home and just did that for four years back and forth. Can you talk about what it was like going, coming back home, what it was like to be over there? Because what you hear a lot of guys say is they could control that. They could be over there and control what was happening. They come back here and, and they've got a couple problems. One, they're kind of in the way because everyone has learned how to go on in life with them being over there. And number two, they miss being back in it. And you said it yourself that you wanted to get back into it with your boys and take the fight to them. And I've even heard you talk about contracting that it was everything that was great about the seals with none of the rules. Yeah. And you know, being able to be overseas and make really good money. And the, the greatest part for me was I pretty much handpicked every team for every contract I was on, regardless of the company. And they gave me that leeway because I, I try to always bring in top notch operators, whether our SEAL team brothers or Rangers or Green Berets or AFSOC, Air Force Special Operators. Uh, I've worked with a lot of different guys and they're all outstanding. And, you know, we all just work so well together. Like uh, uh, my boy Greg Anderson said, you know, he was like, in our podcast I did with them, he thought the Rangers were just everything in his world until he got exposed to working with Green Berets and especially us, you know, he probably thought we were a little cowboyish, which sometimes we are, um, and cocky, but we're all cocky. You know, that that's part of the edge become becoming a special operator in the special operations community. If you don't have some type of edge, you either don't last long or you're just going to leave on your own, you know? And it, it's one of those things, again, like I love all my boys that are not SEALs and I would do anything for them. And uh, I think it's vice versa, but they're, they're outstanding operators like we have in our community in the SEAL teams. Well, let me ask you, and it's a question that I ask a lot of people that come on the show. When you look at it and you see that you have a family, you have a wife, a daughter back home, and then you have this great job that's overseas. I ask the question, you know that your family, your wife and your child are going to be there su supposedly for the rest of your life. That's your partner. That's all this and that. Why the call to go back over there? What pulls so hard? What is it about that brotherhood that pulls so hard to pull you back into the fray time and time and time again? Well, you know, at that point in my life, when I got out of the SEAL teams, I wasn't done, but it was a different path. So it gave me a, a new opportunity, a new experience, 
Um, and financially it was, it's a game changer, right? Cause you're, you're going from, I believe my last check in the SEAL teams was our, my gross pay for the year was about $55,000, right? Um, and that includes all of our special pays, which are tax-free dive pay, demo pay, jump pay, professional pay for being a SEAL. But when you can transfer your skill set with an entire team that you've been that you've worked with before on active duty, it's almost a no-brainer, right? You don't you don't get retirement out of it, but you still have that cohesion where and then you're making 20, 22, 23, 24 grand a month. So it's life changing and you're kind of hanging your ass out there. But I always knew where my boys were in Iraq or even in working in Africa. I always had my network and they would say, if shit hits the fan, brother, you have our sat phone number. We have cell phone numbers. Let us know where you're at, where you're going to be operating. And it was a beautiful thing because not a lot of guys get that, you know. So let me ask you, why did you leave the Navy in the first place? I got you knew that you still want say that. Yeah, again? I got recruited by a bunch of our boys that were protecting President Karzai in Afghanistan. So a small group of us got recruited. We got out of the teams and we're getting ready to go to Afghanistan. And I think it was. Dynacor, Dynacor lost the contract and then tripled the boys from Triple Canopy, all the uh, CAG Bubba's started up Triple Canopy and brought all the guys over from the Karzai detail. So we just followed them to Triple Canopy, um, got signed up for their uh, executive protection PSD course. And uh, we had a really good group of us and ended up waiting for several months after, you know, graduating from their course, getting their uh, certificate and certification. That's back when Eric Prince and Blackwater had a giant contract. I want to say it was like over a hundred million dollars in Iraq. Well, Black, um, Blackwater had lost it to Triple Canopy. And so Triple Canopy was putting a bunch of us through their training course you know, thinking that everything was going to be good to go. Well, Blackwater protested, won the contract back, and then we didn't have jobs. If you, So we got recruited by a legendary SEAL named Denny Chalker. His, his call sign was Snake, and he's a uh, plank owner of SEAL Team 6. My last boss in the SEAL teams was getting ready to retire as a Master Chief, and he was a plank owner of Team Six, so he reached out and said, "Hey, I got a solid frogman that just left my assault office. I want to send him to you. He'll run anything you got. You tell him what you need, and he will make it happen with his group of frogmen." And that's what we did. So we ended up going back to Baghdad and working out of Camp Dublin, right there by the by Baghdad International Airport and trained up Iraqi emergency response unit personnel that were, you know, paramilitary and uh, got them 
trained up. Then I shifted over to the operational companies and took them out in Baghdad and then up in Mosul on combat operations. Here's my question. With everything that you're doing, contracting, being in the Navy, do you ever think about, man, is it all worth it? Is the money all worth it? Is there ever a moment that you take a pause and go, maybe I need to slow down a little bit? You know, I, I didn't think so at the time. And looking back, it was what I wanted to do. You know, I had a serious girlfriend at the time who's not the mother of my child. Um, and we were just, it was just she and I. So she was okay with it. She, her being exposed to the SEAL teams and contracting was brand new with her. But she supported me and she knew that's what I wanted to do, especially because I was working with some of my close brothers from the SEAL teams. And she knew that we, and she knew a lot of them, right? After meeting them and hanging out and barbecues and partying and drinking, uh, she knew that this was the lifestyle was about at that time and supported it. So, you know, she was a great supporter of what I was doing and the mission, you know, getting these guys trained up, then going on combat operations with them and working with the striker platoons and uh you know she knew i loved it we were having it was, it was a good time you know what i mean so i was with my boys we were still helping in the fight and uh i was in a good spot at that time all right so let's start talking about injuries that you're receiving because this was not a one day you wake up and all these injuries are on you they've happened over time i want you to talk about how you got those injuries, what they came from, because I think that a lot of people look at like when you get hurt in the military, it's going to be from one accident. It's going to be from one situation or one close call. I want you to talk about, because you explain it different than I've ever heard anyone saying the jumping out of planes, the breech blast, the fast roping, all of those things take a different toll on your body. So if you can talk about those and let's talk about the migraines that you're having. Yeah. So I'll start out with jumping. So, you know, the shock, from a parachute, I mean, your brain, uh, just think of an egg, right? And the, even if you shake an egg a little bit, it's gonna move a lot internally. So imagine the G-forces, uh, you know, it's physics and then physiology and biology, human biology and physiology. When that chute opens and everybody that's jumped out of an airplane, whether you're a civilian skydiver, military free fall, static line, your brain, your neck, your whole body feels this incredible, you know, from that opening, your brain's getting jacked up. I mean, it is, it, it's moving inside your skull and your cranium at a force that's very, very incredibly powerful. Right. Right. And then, you talk about shooting rockets, uh, shooting heavy heavy weapons right next to each other or right on top of each other. Um, even riding from the port in Kuwait to go take down the Iraqi tankers, heavy seas, you're just getting tossed around, right? Like I have degenerative neck disease, my lower back's uh, really messed up from an accident in the SEAL teams. 
And if you don't do anything to at least manage the damage, like it becomes degenerative. So you get degenerative disc disease. Uh, some guys get nerve issues, you name it, but it's all uh, cumulative. So all the stuff that we do that makes us lethal, break us the hell down and beat us up to the point where guys have to have hip replacements, right? Fast rope, when you come down a fast rope, you can break an ankle, a tib fib, you know, uh, snap off your freaking ball sockets from the top of your femurs. I mean, there's so much that can happen. And, uh, you know, even jumping, hitting a target, like in Iraq, getting the ladder up there, getting over the glass that's glued to the top of the wall, but just jumping down every night with all your kit on, your explosives, your weapons, um, your ankles, your knees, your back are taking heavies. So, you know, I don't know what the answer is. Maybe it is an exoskeleton suit that can provide some serious protection for our brains, our backs, our neck, everything, our shoulders, um, even like our shoulders. Just the six months of going through BUDS and SEAL training, our shoulders are jacked. I mean, holding that inflatable boat over your head for six months, you know, our PT logs that it's all wear and tear and it all builds up over time. Let's talk about one injury in particular. Um, I had heard you talk about you were out and you had taken some, some green berets were working with you and you were out doing, I guess just a live fire out and you had taken some dune buggies out um, and you guys were moving in a convoy, but this was one that really kind of set your back pain in motion. Is that, am I reading into it? Right. You're spot on DJ. We took out a couple of, they weren't green berets, but we worked with the uh, green beret platoon that were co-located with us in Kuwait. So we were prepping for Iraq and a couple of the guys, the regular army bubbas that were hooking us up on base with a bunch of different things. We decided we'd take them out to our night shoot. Um, We did a day night shoot on the Udari range up in uh, Kuwait, several miles from base. Uh, we had a great day. We were hauling ass around the desert, kind of let them drive. Uh, we were shooting our 50 cals, our 40 Mike Mike Mark 19s, our saws, um, our M60s, we our M4s. We had a ton of ammo, so we had a good day. And then we did a night shoot um, and then ended up cleaning everything up and wrapping it up. Started heading back to base to Camp Doha and normally we would call out this big ass ditch on, we called it range road between base and, uh, you know, Udari range up on the hill, up on the plateau. Well, our dune buggies, we call them uh, desert patrol vehicles, but I just tell everybody they were combat dune buggies because people are like desert <laughs> patrol vehicles. What does that mean? So a combat dune buggy, um, and normally on comms, we would call it out so everybody could get around it. Well, it's nighttime. We're on night vision. Um, nobody called it out that I heard, and I knew it was coming up. Well, I was dusted out because I was the fifth vehicle and the last vehicle in the convoy. 
and we hit that thing doing like 60, 65 miles an hour. And it bent the all steel uh, Chenoweth frame. And I tell you what, I came to and I'm figuring out over the last couple of years when they check my neck, because when I got out of the SEAL teams, our military doc and the VA doc didn't really check for damage to my neck. It was all my lower back. And we figured out that, you know, I had a little, a mild TBI from hitting the steering wheel, even though I had a helmet on, but my neck, I have a degenerative disc disease in my neck as well. So not just my lower back, but once we had that accident, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what, the impact was brutal because that army sergeant uh, that rode up in the turret with the 50 cal, his seat bent at that 90 degree angle and slammed his face forward on the butterfly trigger of the 50 cal, the M2HB. And by the time we all kind of came to, I got out, checked on him and my back was a mess. I was like, Sergeant, are you all right? And he had a race stripe up his face and all bloody from the butterfly triggers. And his grill was a little jacked up. He didn't lose teeth, but his lips are like, and just mangled. And I was like, shit. I go, are you all right? So we were trying to get the platoon on comms. My navigator was our assistant officer in charge, Jay. I was like, Jay, are you right? He's like, holy shit. He's all, I knew that was coming up. I said, I did too. I didn't hear it on comms. He's like, neither did I. So the platoon was almost back to base and we're trying to get them on our encrypted comms. They were too far, even line of sight, but they realized, they looked back and realized we weren't back there. So they came back to us finally got him on comms and told him I hit that ditch and we bent the front end of the, the Chenoweth of our DPV. And so I was able to start it back up, but we went back to base slow, went to medical, um, got checked out and I was a mess. My, ever since that day, that night, my back has never been the same. So I've been dealing with back issues from that accident for, I mean, that was November of 2002. So 20 years. Yeah. Well, I heard you try to pay that army guy off with uh, yeah. a bunch of like, <laughs> yeah, we I heard I you. Yeah. With flag. some t-shirts and some hats yeah. and stuff like, yeah, you, you told him, here's your gift bag. Thanks for playing. Yeah. And you know, he was staying in the barracks next to us. Cause it was a giant warehouse separated by like, um, half walls or three quarter walls. So obviously I went and checked up on him and he was like, man, that was badass." And his lips were just mangled. So dropped off the, the hats, the coins, the t-shirts for him and his buddies. And I said, man, I am so sorry. He was like, dude, that was fucking awesome. I said, all right. But yeah, I, you know, I apologize. And obviously I didn't mean it. And my back would be in a much better place had it not happened, but it, you know, it is what it is and just try to take care of it and take care of my core. Let's go over all your injuries. Uh, if we can even talk about them all, but I, I want people to understand just how, uh, kind of physically messed up you were, because I want to talk about the medicines too, right. Uh, that you were taking and the difference in, 
I mean, it went from a little to a lot to a whole bunch. So I want them to understand exactly what you're dealing with when you're doing this. There's a scan called a spec scan that really truly looks at your brain and it shows the damage to it. So I think you saw the PDF I sent you with the, the yeah, slide. I think I can actually bring it up. Yeah. So you just keep talking and I'll, I'll work on bringing it up. Will do. So yeah, there we go. Um, just to give the viewers a little insight on this, red is good on those <laughs> red images. So there's not a whole lot of hell of red on there. And all the dark spots are those perfusions or the damage to my brain. And you can see those better. But uh, the base of my brain and like right above the base of it, that all should be red. And that's healthy functional brain flow. So obviously the front of my brain didn't have anything. I didn't have anything mid brain and uh, it, it explains a lot. And I laugh about it because we make decision-making is in your frontal lobes. So if you can imagine that looking at that, no wonder why I made a lot of bad decisions over the freaking years, you know? Um, and it, it's just funny to me because when I saw these, I was like, that explains a lot. That explains why I was at times just fucking acting like a crazy wild man. Um, but you can see it. And if you can put that, uh, the next one up with the really silver looking sure. images. So those images up top are the pre 50 hyperbaric oxygen treatments, but you can see all the holes in my brain and the first three images at the top left to right and then post 50 hyperbaric oxygen treatments you can see where it actually healed up down below and uh, so can you talk about what causes those holes because i've heard you talk about them a lot but i've never heard you explain kind of how they happen yeah that's the uh you know the explosive brazance where it's damaging your brain to include you know the the trauma from our childhood uh, the trauma from, like I said, jumping, um, explosive breaching, all the rockets, um, you name it. It's, it. it's a culmination of all of that that we're exposed to. And some people's brains are even worse than mine, to be honest with you, DJ. Like I've seen spec scans of some of my other boys and their brains had even more holes in them because they stayed in longer in the teams. So they were by default exposed to even more than I was, right? So like my brother, I can only imagine what his brain looks like. Cause he did next year, it'll be 23 years. And most of his time in the teams was on combat deployments and always doing breaching and always dropping bombs overseas, you know, uh, fighting savages off during operations and I'm really, really curious to see what his brain looks like compared to mine, right? Like I was still contracting, but I wasn't doing the same exact training and combat deployments like he's done for the past, you know, 15 years, 18 years. So is he, and we'll talk about him right now because we'll get back into the injuries, but is he thinking ahead to this? I mean, you have all this knowledge at your fingertips now, are, are you prepping him? Is he prepping himself to deal so, with all this when it's over? 
he's done some prep work. Uh, he's done a, a set of stellate ganglion blocks, actually the right side, gave him a lot of relief. But his last big op overseas, they um, found an ISIS cave complex right in Syria on the border in northern Iraq. And they ended up getting into a gnarly firefight in the cave. Um, they ended up, he called in a lot of close air support and it damaged his inner ear organ. And he was having major vertigo. Um, and this is just a couple of years ago. He had to pull himself offline. He was going to go do another deployment, but his symptoms were so gnarly. He just, he had to go get everything looked at. He had to do some therapies, but uh, all these therapies we that I've done, all the different treatment modalities, once he retires, we're, he's doing all of them. Well, that's good that he's he's thinking ahead. Are there any more before we come out of this? Are there any more pictures that we want to look at right here? Uh, Brain-wise, no, we're good. Okay. And, and, you know, so obviously with my glasses on, this helped um, before I went to HBOC with my T gnarly TBI migraines. And then my both my rotator cuffs are shot. I'm still putting off those surgeries. Obviously, I just talked about my uh, degenerative uh, disc disease in my C-spine. Uh, my hearing's messed up. I need hearing aids and, you know, frogmen are a little vain. I'm like, fuck, I need to go get hearing aids, but I won't, right? Eventually I will. I just got to talk myself into yeah, it. Yeah, when you can't hear shit anymore, you will. Exactly. So I have everything on blasting, you know, loud as loud can be. Uh, let me see what else. I had a femoral... Um, fracture during hell week that I was rolled post hell week for because I was dragging my leg during hell week. Uh, both knees are a little beat up. My feet were really, really beat up. Um, and I finally got that pain under control. And, uh, because I used to have neuropathy and my feet are pretty damn flat. And then obviously my back, is the big one. And, you know, I, I do chiropractic adjustments. I roll it. I hang upside down on one of those teeter hangups. So especially cause I'm traveling so much between back home in Texas and SoCal. So being on a plane just crushes my back. Um, so I, I go to a chiropractic clinic that is nationwide. So I have my docs in all the cities. It's kind of funny. Nice. <laughs> So I'll get into town. I'll be like, hey, what's up, Doc Jack? They're like, hey, how was your travel? And haven't seen you in a minute, but they track everything. So they see I've been going to all my docs in whatever city and state I've been in. And right. uh, it gives me a lot of relief. Like, I'm the biggest bitch, dude. I'm not going to lie. If I'm sleeping <laughs> in a freaking hotel bed, I travel with like a little one and a half to two inch memory foam topper. Um I'll There's no, listen, I'm not going to tell you what I travel with, but you're good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, it's, I don't carry like a teddy bear with me or anything, but, right. but I never, I, I have a pillow that, that I can't sleep without that goes <laughs> in my suitcase every single time. I, nice. I can't sleep without it. So you got to have your pillow. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I I'm not going to blame anyone on how they travel and what they do. So Going back into the injuries, while you're working, contracting, uh, and, and we can even talk about your time in the military, 
Is there any time that you're on uh, medication, pain medication, and then kind of the dosages and and how it's helping you get through the pain? Yeah, I was on, um, you know, for my insomnia, the VA put me on um, Ambien. And this was 13 years ago now. But I started taking Ambien and I got hooked uh, when my insomnia was really bad up until recently. And then they were giving me a ton of Vicodin for pain management. Once again, got fucking hooked like a crackhead. Um, And then I'd wash it all down with whiskey. I'm on nothing anymore. I only take my amlodipine for hypertension, which I'll probably be able to get off of that this year or next year. But doing all these different treatment modalities really got me to a point. So the insomnia and the nightmares, they put me on a bunch of meds, which really fucked me up even more than I was before. And uh, I think you saw that PowerPoint slide with the medications I was on. For yeah, really we can long. bring that up. Yeah, yeah, you can bring that up if you don't mind. Yeah, let me uh, keep talking about it and and let me look through and I'll, I'll bring that one up in particular. Yeah, so, so initially I was just on the amlodipine, the Vicodin, the Ambien. Um, when I finally went into the mental health clinic, you know, they put me on a bunch of anti-anxiety, anti-nightmare, anti-psychotics. And uh, I'll tell you what, the one pill that I took within four days made me want to eat my fucking block. It was the mirtazapine. And my daughter, at she was, what, nine and a half? She's 12 now. She saw it, and she saw that I was completely checked out. So I ended up going to my shrink at the VA clinic right here, and I said, Doc, I, this stuff is really, really fucking me up. She's like, is it all of it, some of it, one of them? And I said, in particular, the mirtazapine. She goes, well, let's up your dosage. I was like, what, ma'am? She's like, well, let's do 20 or 20 or 30 milligrams. And I said, 10 milligrams is making me feel suicidal. Why the fuck am I going to up it? Like, I already feel suicidal. I said, no, ma'am. She, I go, I have a nine and a half year old daughter that caught it. I didn't even realize that. I knew I was off. And I said, I'm not going to take this shit anymore. I'm not going to, I'm going to figure out something better. And, uh, you know, the sumatriptan sussanate was for my gnarly TBI migraines. But, uh, yeah, and then they switched me off Vicodin, the Trazodone. Um, you know, I was able to get off all of these with all the different treatment modalities I've done over the past couple of years. And I feel better than I ever have as opposed to taking all these meds, all these poison pills, because that's all they do. And I get it. They give us what they have available, but it's not the right answer. Because when you're biologically and physiologically fucked up, especially in your brain, you don't start adding um, other chemicals to it, right? And you know what the number one um, adverse reaction for mirtazapine is for my age group? I'm guessing homicide. Suicide. Okay. It says, like you, if anybody listening to this... (laughs) Google's mirtazapine adverse reactions, suicide pops up first. Okay. I, okay so I know for sure, I'm not the only 
you know, active duty or combat veteran that has been issued something like this. Right. Right. And, and okay. So that's my next set of questions. Now I've heard you talk about, and, and I don't know if I would say you defend the VA, but you definitely say your docs were good, that they were there for you, that they, they gave you what that was available to them. Yeah. They were good in the, in the aspect of they responded really well and quickly to what I was dealing with. But on the other hand, right. I, I can't, fault them for um doing what they have available in their system but it's not the right answer but let me ask you that's where i get confused with with the question because you say i can't fault them they're a doctor do no harm you know that at a certain point they know what they're prescribing i'm not saying i'm not putting them all at fault i'm not saying anything like that but it's hard for me to understand when they have you on one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven things, uh, and you're telling them these aren't working and they're upping them. There's there is a disconnect somewhere, right? And that my shrink was she was brand new to me. Um, you know, my doc and some of the other docs I'd been working with at my VA for quite some time, and uh, my one primary healthcare doc, we did some. Uh, a physical and some lab work is like, man, you've been on Vicodin and Ambien a really long time. So that's when they switched me up to the uh, Trazodone and the pro, not I, the pro HCL is what I call it for short. Um, but it was my shrink, my VA shrink that put me on the, uh, the Mirtazapine. And I just said, you know, she didn't get it. Um, and she was trying to argue with me and I said, no, I'm not taking this anymore. And you, you can say what you're going to say to me, but I'm done. And so I just stopped taking all of them. And at that point it was probably shortly, not long after my best friend, Scotty Wirtz and his team were killed in action in Syria and Mambij. Uh, January of 2019, because my my train was already off the track, and I'm sure you saw you saw that picture of me from was it February of 2020 that I have in this slide where I the Ambien wasn't working. I was trying to I was eating a shit ton of Vicodin. I was drinking a shit ton of whiskey, and that's when I called Debbie Lee, one of our Gold Star mothers and founder of America's Mighty Warriors and said, Mama Lee, look at me this morning. I got to get out to HBOT. And she got on it and started the process. And I got out to Florida, March of 2020, right after my birthday. And right when the pandemic kicked off and started doing my hyperbaric oxygen therapy treatments. And that's what so that treatment alone is what really got me off the Ambien, Vicodin, um, allowed me to finally get some sleep without any meds or anything else. And it was it was really a lifesaver for me with my gnarly traumatic brain injury migraines. And um, I'll tell you what, had I not done that at that time, I, who knows where I would have been at 
at that point. But I'll tell you what, if you want to bring up that picture that I, that I have in here, I mean, you can just look at my eyes in the bags, you know, it, I was, I was struggling big time. And uh, I was dealing with a lot of guilt from losing Scotty because he tried to recruit me to go over to uh, the DIA, the D defense intelligence agency team he was on. So you get into this, this headspace where you have the hero complex, like, damn, fuck. If I would have joined Scotty and his team, I could have saved him, them. I would have caught, you know, I would have been on top of it. I would have fucking smoked that suicide bomber from ISIS. Like all this shit goes through your head and, and your brain is already fucked up from traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress that it sent me down a rabbit hole. And this is when I was like, all right, I got to do something now. And by this time I was already on, um, you know, testosterone, hormone and vitamin therapy through Warrior Health Foundation, which I was just recently put on the board. So in that aspect, I was doing well, but it still wasn't helping me with my headaches or my sleep, right? Because it, it, when you're dealing with operator syndrome, it was helping with my chemical imbalance, but not the insomnia and the TBI migraines I was having. Can you give us a quick rundown of how many pills you were taking a day before you break off to the hyperbaric treatment? What are we looking at on an average day? Uh, I'd probably have a couple of Ambien to sleep and four or five Vicodin and a bunch of whiskey. And then, you know, on top of that, the all the other stuff, Mertazapine, these... Uh, everything else. I mean, I was probably, I don't know, 20 something pills. If you add them all up. So let me ask you when you wake up in the morning, which seems crazy that I'm even asking that, but when you wake up in the morning after taking all this stuff, walk us through how you feel. Cause I can't, I, I can't even imagine what you feel like in the morning. Oh, I, I feel like shit. Cause I still wasn't sleeping. Uh, like I should be, there was no REM. I had severe sleep apnea, which is another um, service-connected injury I have from my time in the teams. Um, they took out my giant, uh, they, I had surgery to clear up my airway and they took out my giant tonsils. So that helped a little bit. I got a CPAP machine, which helped a little bit, but I couldn't really deal with it. And it was just, I would always rip it off. Um, but I mean, just, I would feel like shit and guess what I would do again? My body would be achy, inflamed, bunch of Viking and boom, down the rabbit hole to get this day started. And that was just to be functional throughout the day, right? I wasn't even drinking yet. The drinking and the ambient came at nighttime with another little handful of pills, you know, some more Vicodin. Uh, if I was having a headache, you know, that med, um, and I really started, always had weird dreams and every now and then nightmares. And my ex-girlfriends would tell me like, you were back in Iraq. What really fucked me up after losing Scotty and his team back in January of 2019, I would see all the dead Iraqis and reliving everything. Um, 
then Scotty started showing up on the ground next to the dead Iraqis we took out in Iraq. And it, it just, it fucked me up, you know, and I had had dreams about him with him not being in Iraq, but that really, really fucked me up. So I was, you know, the anti-nightmare medication, I would take a bunch of that. So I was just like pumping myself full of all these pills and, uh, you know, HBOT helped me get off of everything after 50 treatments in Florida. At that point, when you're taking all this medication, are you ever, it's going to sound like a crazy word to say, but are you ever sober in a 24 hour time period? No, no. I mean, I, I was, I was always on Vicodin and Ambien. Then I was pretty much drinking every night, whether I had my daughter or not. If I had her, I'd drink like half a bottle of whiskey. But if I didn't have her, I'd finish the whole whiskey bottle off, right? Just to go to bed. And this was just every night. It would, the vicious cycle every night. And, uh, At this point, do you have anybody around you that has, committed suicide or anybody that is kind of going through what you went through later on when you finally realize that is there anybody around you doing that yet where you're starting to go oh shit i i do that oh yeah and i do that too and that is that going on at all oh yeah definitely and a lot of them are um people reach out to me and they're like hey i sent you the podcast you did with Greg and I got this combat veteran, whether female or male, really struggling. They're struggling with boots. They're struggling with Coke. They're struggling with meth. They're struggling with pills. I mean, this is my life, DJ, weekend and week out. And I'll tell you, in the last month, one of my close SEAL team brothers was suicidal to the point where he put his gun in his mouth out in Colorado. And uh, I just called the checkup on him because he was doing another round of hyperbaric oxygen therapy treatments. And I thought he was doing better after having started them. And he broke down and he said, I'm not doing well. I don't want to be here anymore. I hate myself. And bro, I pulled over on the side of the road and he told me and he was bawling. I told him I was getting ready to travel back to SoCal. And I said, give me a couple hours. So I called one of our other close brothers. He flew from Missouri to Denver, got him. I flew from back home in San Antonio to San Diego. We all met there, had a little team. And then he and I did uh, several treatment modalities together and then separately and uh, it saved his life. And this was a month ago. And he was extremely suicidal. And he is one of my close frogman brothers that I had already put him through all the treatment modalities. Well, he got COVID last year, whatever strain it was at the end of the summer, almost killed him. I mean, it was a miracle. He lived through it, but it didn't only mess him up, um, mess his lungs up. It messed him up neurologically and erased all the work we did. And he was in incredible shape, doing well. He and his wife got it, she beat it, and he ended up just, it was bad to the point where she thought she was gonna have to do last rites. 
and uh, he pulled out, but he wasn't the same. So we got him, you know, we all met up. I put a little team together and we did several of the treatment modalities that you saw in my uh, slide deck. And uh, all of them combined over four days saved his life. So, and that's just one example, but there's hundreds, if not thousands that right. are unheard of that, that are never even, they never make an outcry. No one ever calls them. And I'm not just talking from the special operations center. I'm talking law enforcement, first responders that don't ever make it. So I don't, I don't see how we ever defeat this or even get it in control. Is that, does that sound like a crazy thing to say, but I don't, I don't see how we ever get it in control. There's got to be something that we do to change this because it's out of control. So they, you know, that treatment response plan I created off based off of my symptoms and other combat veterans that you saw in the slide deck I sent to you, that is a pretty good um, pathway moving forward. Because myself working with all the different foundations, over the last what year, year and a half, maybe even longer now. Myself with them working to help other combat veterans that are struggling with their post-traumatic stress and their traumatic brain injuries and even physical injuries from being blown up or burned uh, during a combat operation overseas. We're batting a thousand percent. We have not lost one combat veteran, female or male, that I've worked with. And the efficacy, the, probably the average efficacy of all these treatment modalities is somewhere in the 80 percentile. And I'm talking, there's not many adverse reactions. And if there are, we work through them and try to get them reset. Um, but it, 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 this is the pathway forward. So between hyperbaric treatments and America's Mighty Warriors and Mama Lee, AKA Debbie, or Debbie Lee, AKA Mama Lee, um, Warrior Health Foundation for our special operations brothers and, you know, the hormone, testosterone, vitamin therapy, uh, veterans exploring treatment solutions with Marcus and Amber Capone, which they provided my grant to go down south and do ibogaine and the 5-MeO-DMT, which saved my life. Um, and then we have Troops First Foundation with Rick Kell and Frank Larkin, which we're sending fellow combat veterans to get the stellate ganglion blocks in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, you know, I have, you saw what I sent you. I'm recently working with the founder of the Wounded Blue and his team to help Leos, whether they're retired, active, or former, get stellate ganglion blocks to help get the word out for helping Leos with their PTS. Um, you saw Legacy Farmstead, the horse equine therapy, starting to work with them and their outstanding people to get active duty, combat veterans, Leos, fire, um, other first responders to their therapy to help save lives. I mean, it's a small lift or it's a heavy lift with a bunch of small foundations. If we had a percentage of DOD's money for military medicine or the VA's 
access to their billions, we could save thousands of lives using this treatment response plan and all these treatment modalities. But you bring up the point that I wanted to say next, and I'm going to play devil's advocate with you for a minute. The money's going to run out sooner or later. And especially with the last two years, with the lockdown happening, these organizations are running out of funds quickly uh, to get this taken care of. So to play devil's advocate, so now we're, we are on the right path. Like I ask you, how do we solve this problem? We've got the right path. We have the treatments. We have all this available. But if you can't afford them or you can't get to them, what good are they? Exactly. And that's where... You know, we've had Marcus and Amber Capone have gone to Congress uh, recently. Dan Crenshaw, one of our congressmen and former SEAL that was wounded in action uh, from Texas, has spoken to Congress. There's other people talking to Congress about psilocybin treatments, MDMA treatments as a you know treatment modality as well. Ketamine, which ketamine is already out there and legal, and that's more on the Western medicine side. But DOD, military medicine, and VA medicine are failing us at a catastrophic level. That's why they came up with Mission Daybreak, because they are, uh, I mean, what we're doing collectively to save lives, to include the reality center, the light um, audio vibration therapy, this package of treatment modalities that won't only save active duty combat veteran Leo's fire and first responders. You can use this for anybody that's had trauma to include civilians, high speed wreck, civilian with a brain injury, um, schizophrenia, uh, anything neurological. A lot of these treatment modalities are going to give relief and save lives on some level. Um, and if we can get the military, VA medicine, and even civilian medicine, because civilian docs love to push the pills as well, if we get them on board and get funding, we can change the direction of how we're treating everybody, literally everyone. Anybody, Absolutely. Anybody with trauma or traumatic brain injury or neurological issues, we could literally change how society is operating right now, right? I'll give you an example. The kid from Uvalde, that savage that killed all those poor little ones and the teachers. Like Uvalde was in our school district and we have teachers at Bernie ISD that grew up in Uvalde, played sports, graduated from there. And uh, had we caught a lot of these shooters before and help them heal from their neurological issues. And those things are foregone conclusion. They wouldn't have happened. Even with you know all of our veterans that are homeless and hooked on drugs, um, same thing. It it really is a treatment response plan with treatment modalities that can be used for everybody and help everyone heal. But. Going back into devil's advocate for a minute, look at Stella Ganglion Block. Let's look at that one for an example. Uh, Sean Mulvaney, James Lynch up in Annapolis. Right. They've tried for years now to get the VA to bring that on board 
to bring down the cost so that they can get it out to, I don't want to say the masses, but more people than it's getting to now. And, and they run into roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. We can even take out the plant medicines that you're talking about where you have to go out of the country to do those kind of therapeutic treatments, okay? Right. We take those out, and we just look at, at the United States. Hyperbaric chamber therapy is not cheap. Stellate ganglion, you're talking about three dollars to $5,000 a treatment? And that includes all the logistic costs, right? The flights, maybe a rental car, a hotel, the meals for those three or four days. Yeah, it's pricey. It's absolutely pricey. That's why it's so imperative to get the military and VA medicine on board so they can start shifting their billions of dollars to these nonprofits or to hospitals and bring insurance companies on board because they're going to make money regardless, right? So because they're so expensive, they're going to make probably even more money than the $1 pill because you're still going to have the same amount of people DJ with the same issues from trauma, traumatic brain injury and other neurological issues. So if they, if they take a step back, they would probably make even more money because so many people need it, not just combat veterans, Leo's fire and first responders. Right. But I, I think the big problem is they look at it as money is in kind of the solution, not the cure. It's in the medicine, not the cure. And if right. we bring those things on and we, you know, sooner or later, you're going to start treating people. You're going to start helping people. And I think that that's the big thing that we're looking at is they think that it's a money loser in the end when it goes back to that whole thing where law enforcement, first responders, military are a number to just move down the, the down the aisle. To be honest with you, if Congress took a step back and everybody's talking about gun control and two alpha, um, and they're talking a little bit about mental health, the mental health crisis, if they really had the heart and the mind to step back and say, you know what, these treatment modalities are working for our combat veterans that were just at war for two decades. Let's start pushing hard, have meetings with big pharma, all the big insurance companies, right? You know, United, um, Blue Cross, Blue Shield. It's going to take a heavy lift, but with all the money that they have, they could make it happen if they really really put their heads down and say, because there, there's about 600 of us that have done most of these treatment modalities, right? What do we have? Several million active duty and then several million veterans that are in the States. I mean, it, the billions of billions of dollars, if they can bring the, all that to bear, then we're saving thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lives. Let me ask you one other thing. Uh, why are females so skittish to ask for treatment? With the females I've spoken to, there's not a lot of awareness. We're trying to get out there because a lot of females, uh, somebody told me a number the other day, females that experience military sexual trauma is a, a crazy, I think it was in the 40 percentile 
Um, I'll have to follow up on that that uh, data point, but it was way high. I didn't think it was that high. And I've I've worked recently with an Air Force Afghanistan veteran that was struggling with TBI because of all the close um, call explosives she was exposed to. Um, but she is a military sexual trauma survivor and not a lot of people talk about it, which is a problem, right? I mean, it's a huge problem. And these poor females just shove it deep inside themselves and then it bubbles to the surface and then they're suicidal. Right. And it, it's a brutal thing to hear one of our fellow sisters who served our our country talk about another active duty or combat veteran friend or colleague or acquaintance rape them. It's fucking insane, you know, and I'm sure a little bit of that goes on in the Leo community and firefighting community and first responder community. You know what I mean? Like it's, Technically, in one aspect, it's a man's world and they're trying to fit in. Um, I'll tell you, I recently linked up with an active sheriff from out here in SoCal. She just got into an officer-involved shooting. They cleared her and her uh, buddy. He's not her partner, but he showed up to the call with her. And um, they cleared her in three days. She was back at work. I ran into her at a restaurant. Um and now I got her connected with the Wounded Blue, but there's this stigma in her brain because they put her back to work, but she wasn't ready. And she's still on patrol right now. And she's fairly new. I mean, she's been with the department for two years and hasn't even been on patrol for one. You know, this guy was trying to stab her and her partner in a grocery store um, they ended up dumping a bunch of rounds into him, didn't kill him, but it ended up having to render aid and she had blood all over her. So she was struggling. So I connected her. I said, Hey, I got your back. We have some resources. So I connected her with Lieutenant Randy Sutton from the founder of the Wounded Blue, got her some peer to peer support through them, uh, then connected her with Legacy Farmstead back home in Bernie. And we're just circling the wagons. I linked her up with a retired LA County Sheriff whose husband was murdered on duty about six years ago. And she was struggling and suicidal. So just, you know, bringing all the resources to bear and awareness, she was like, she didn't want to talk to her command staff, even though they were supportive because of the stigma. You know, she didn't want to get that stamp and showing that she was weak. And I said, you're not weak. It, when you shoot somebody or you take another human's life, it affects you eventually. It may not be now. It may not be sometime in the middle of your life, but it probably will later. It's, it's, it's the fact of it, just like going to war. And uh, she's very grateful. Um, and she didn't know these resources were out there. So trying to get awareness out there not just for our combat veteran and veteran community you know for leos for fire for first responders and for civilians you know that are struggling with 
their trauma or traumatic brain injury. And, um, you know, doing stuff like this really helps us get it out there because then people start coming out of the woodworks, right? You're going to get, I'll probably get a bunch of comments and be like, holy shit, I needed to hear that. Just like the podcast I did with Greg on his Endless Endeavor podcast. The reason I bring that up when I ask about that is because I think that right now, because we are just jumping into mental health, I think that we're really starting to look at it uh, seriously right now. I think that people label PTS or uh, any kind of stress or anything like that as certain things. They don't understand that it's an all-encompassing. And when you talk about the females, you talk about a completely different thing that most people probably don't think about causing PTS or even happening or occurring. Right. What we want people to know is that there is a lot of different things and that it's okay to reach out. It's okay to not be okay and to reach out, talk about it, get someone on board. So let's go over a couple of the organizations that you're working with. We've mentioned them briefly, but I'll right. kind of run down the list. You tell me how people can get involved with it. First off, the Navy SEAL Fund. Our Navy SEAL Fund, I'm on the board of directors with, um, it's all volunteers. We're either retired SEALs or former, and we support our active duty, reservists, former retired SEALs, and a lot of things and what they need. I mean, what after my daughter was in that really gnarly accident and you saw that picture, um, they helped me with some of my legal costs because I ended up getting um, a lawyer to get sole, sole legal and physical custody of her. So that's one of the ways that we help our brothers. Um, we work with other foundations to help our SEAL team specific, right? Um, brothers, but we do work with other nonprofits that are not SEAL team associated. Um, normally in raising funds to get somebody, help somebody with a mortgage or help somebody start up a new business. Um, or even uh, most importantly, if somebody dies and passes or passes away from, you know, whatever it is, suicide, a health issue, we rally, um, the troops and we circle the wagons and, you know, we, we have a process and we approve it and we make sure we try to, um, um, vet, you know, the story and what's going on. And then, um, you know, we work with all the other foundations that you've seen on this treatment response plan. So when I put this treatment response plan together, we were already all kind of working together, but I just kind of, imposed my will and brought everybody in together, right? Um, like any good frogman, I said, you know what? We need to have a process and what's available to our guys. Because even internally, a lot of our guys have no idea what's all available. And um, getting that awareness out is a big help. But, you know, civilians and everyone else in the U.S., we need funding. Because these are, we're all very small foundations. But in order to do this, we got to have a lot of financial help. Um, like Warrior Health Foundation will be back home in Texas on Wednesday. I, um, I help put the plan together for our play sheet to raise much more money so we can get current and even new 
special operators their blood work, you know, through the labs, get their testosterone, vitamin, and hormone therapy started out or continued. Um, and my boy, Sean Rosario, is amazing. He's a former SEAL Team 4 SEAL, then went over to our Naval Special Warfare Development Group, and he saw this need because our good friend, Dr. Chris Free, came up with operator syndrome, and it's, you know, you saw it on um, my slide deck, and you can share, you know, all the information with people if they ask for it. But, you know, the stress and the high allostatic load throws all of our hormones and our chemical, natural chemical balances off, way off, and um, to include some of our glands in our brain. Uh, so that, you know, collectively, you kind of have to, I tell everybody, you have to stack these treatment modalities to where you get to the point where it's going to, there's no magic pill in one of them, right? Because Warrior Health Foundation isn't going to heal your brain like hyperbaric oxygen therapy treatments that America Mighty, America's Mighty Warriors sends us to. But when you're stacking them all together, they're very impactful. And then you have veterans ex exploring treatment solutions and right now, as far as I know, uh, Amber and Marcus are providing grants for still for uh, special operations combat veterans, hoping to expand to conventional forces that are combat veterans. Um, Frank Larkin, Rick Kell, and Troops First Foundation, you know, once again, trying to get funding and getting money coming in so we can continue sending uh, fellow combat veterans to Doc Mulvaney, Doc Lynch for the stellate ganglion blocks. And that, uh, just like Mama Lee and America's Mighty Warriors, that's for any combat veteran that meets the requirements. Um, you know, Warrior Health Foundation's very special operations specific. Veterans exploring treatment solutions is very special operations combat veteran specific. And then you have the Wounded Blue, which is for Leos, and then um, Legacy Farmstead with John and Amy Henderson back home in Bernie. You know, that's for anybody that's dealing with any type of trauma or traumatic brain injury. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to bring all the best nonprofit foundations together and keep on adding them slowly. So we have an amazing network of top end nonprofits um, helping all of us, Leo's fire and for other first responders. Well, let's talk about something a little more upbeat. We've been down for a while. Let's talk about Hill Country Boards. Uh, and that's how we'll kind of wrap up our conversation. But it's what you're doing now. It's starting to catch fire. You have three different kinds, walnut, acacia, and cherry. Uh, so describe the company and what you're doing. So I, it really a fluke. Um, I made, and my, I'm going to give it to my brother before he, I even sent him this podcast, but I made a custom laser engraved cutting board for him out of acacia. And I bought the acacia from a store because I thought it was beautiful and he would love it. So what I did was... Uh, did a custom design laser engraved layout as one of his retirement gifts for next year. 
and uh, I've been using it at shows. I got it right here. Um, I'll show you the front side of it. So that's my logo. This is the Acacia board. And then I covered up his name because he's still on active duty. Um, but you can see it's got our trident, all the teams he was at, our bone frog. Everybody saw it, loved it, and said, I want one. So we got a bunch of boys, especially a very close SEAL team brother named Andy Arabito that is the founder and owner of Half Face Blades. And he's got some amazing, some amazing cutting boards, as do some other veteran-owned com knife companies. And I just thought to myself, well, their primary business are knives. And they'll do like a really select run of cutting boards. And I said, you know what? I might be able to fill that gap. So when people saw my brother's board, I, uh, I said, you know what? Maybe I can slide into the space where everybody is doing field to table, farm to table, um, and have something really beautiful that it's a, that's going to be kind of a, a family pass down type of legacy, you know? Uh, and I give everybody a, a rubberized cutting pad to protect it when you actually want to use it. And then when you're not using it, everybody also gets this really nice wire braided uh, metal stand. So you can put it up on your counter as part of your decor or, you know, on a table or your fireplace when you're not using it. So it becomes part of your home and kind of like your legacy. So I've done all kinds of different designs and boards. I actually created my logo. I do everything pretty much myself when it comes to the design. So you see my logo there. I have this gnarly longhorn wow. carving fork, right? So I said, you know what? I use it for brisket, for turkeys, for steaks. Um, let me come up with a design. So I kind of put together some printouts. I still have them because I was cutting and kind of gluing and pasting and then sent it to my logo guy. And then he came back with my Hill Country Boards logo that's right here on the podcast. And uh, I said, I was like blown away and just loved what he did with my vision. And uh, people are loving the design, you know, it looks like a fork, but it represents our trident a little bit. And then obviously beef and the Texas world famous Texas Longhorn. Um, so that is, and like I said, I buy those acacia boards, laser engrave them and treat them. And I buy them in bulk from a store. But this is a handmade walnut prototype for uh, the bevy hotel back home they wanted some type of charcuterie serving plate and then you can see they didn't end up going with us but uh they went with a super super cheap version of this that is a production you can buy super cheap from a store but this is that's handmade walnut this is a handmade live edge charcuterie board yeah they're beautiful and this is mesquite. Um, and then I, you know, part of the, the price and the cost is the laser engraving. 
and I've, I've done some crazy designs. I love doing it. Um, you know, I've made a lot of military retirement gifts, anniversary gifts for weddings, uh, wedding gifts for like Mr. and Mrs. And they've just all been coming out beautiful. And for me, it's, I have so much fun because when they receive it in the mail, or if I get a chance to hand deliver them, seeing their faces when they open the box is priceless. Because I'll send them pics because they'll want to see it. And I know the pics don't even do the way they come out justice. And so on these um, acacia boards, I don't know if you, you can kind of see it. I, I, see put, it. I put my business scannable QR code with, you can immediately download all my contact information to include my cell phone. It's got my website. It's got my social media. And, uh, people think it's pretty neat because I'm like, well, if it's at your house and somebody wants one and they ask, you got all my info right there. They scan it, save it. They can send me a text and say, Hey, I saw your board at my aunt's house or my cousin's house, my friend's house. Um, I'd love to order one. Can we talk about a design? So I, I'm having a lot of fun doing a lot of cool designs. So let me ask you, going back to a question that I asked earlier, whenever you were working, is this the best part of your life right now? You got your daughter around, you got the company going, you're, you're traveling back and forth. You've got the foundations. Do you think you're at the best point now? I am. And I think it's going to get better because, you know, like I said, I'm a volunteer for our Navy SEALs fund as part of our board of directors. Um, same thing with our Warrior Health Foundation. And everything I do, um, I don't get paid for. This is all because I love America. I love our fellow combat veterans, Leos, firefighters, first responders. And, uh, you know, I, I really think in the not so distant future, I will eventually start getting paid really well for this. Um, considering all the work that goes into it. It's like, it's seven days a week, DJ. I'll get a random text or call like, hey, I'm not doing well, or I got a combat veteran or a cop or a firefighter that's struggling. Can I send them your way? And I, to be honest with you, I won't say no, but they got to want to have the, you know, they want. Absolutely. They, they got to want to have the help. Yeah, they got to want to have it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Absolutely. Make the changes or take that first step to move forward doing it. Cause it's scary for all of us. Right. We're like, Absolutely. What? what the hell is this fucking Navy seal Johnny doing? What am I going to do? Put a needle in my neck? Like, you know, and we're all scared. Like when I went down South last year for Ibogaine and the five MEO DMT, it's crazy. Cause we're all fired up to go to war, but we're scared to go, heal ourselves on these plant or animal medicine psychedelic assisted journeys right healing journeys but we have no problem going to war or getting in a shootout or running in to a burning building to save somebody but when it comes to like trying to save ourselves, we're all scared right? save everybody but yourself exactly yeah. and uh hopefully this gets awareness out brother but um I'm hoping in the future that my business can help impact 
and save lives financially once I get this thing really up and running. Well, let's talk about a couple places that people can find you. Uh, if you guys want the board, you can find him at hillcountryboardstx.com. You can also find what he was talking about at navysealsfund.org. You can also find things that he was talking about at thewoundedblue.org. And you can find out about Legacy Farmstead at LegacyFarmstead.com. Now, these are a couple of the different organizations and foundations that Johnny works with. All of these will, of course, be up on the site where you can find uh, any way that you can to help and how to contact these people. It'll, of course, be up on the website after the show comes out. Is there anything else that you want to promote, Johnny, before we kind of wrap this conversation up? You know what? Um, not off the top of my head, DJ, and I will make sure I get you uh, the full list of all the nonprofits that Absolutely. I'm part of and I work with and people can go on there and look. So it's kind of a one-stop shop for all the uh, the different foundations that I'm working with and that collectively saved my life from all my PTS and TBI symptoms. But uh, yeah, we're, we're here to help. But also, if we can get the word out to get funding and get people donating to help save even more lives than we're doing right now would be amazing. All right, guys, let's run down them one more time before we get out of here. You can find Johnny at hillcountryboardstx.com. You can also find the Navy SEAL Fund at navysealsfund.org. You can find the Wounded Blue at thewoundedblue.org. And you can find legacy farmstead at legacyfarmstead.com. now of course if you want more of me you know where you can find me i'm always on instagram at the dtd underscore podcast i'm on facebook at the dtd podcast and i'm on youtube where all these conversations are in video form at the dtd podcast but don't forget the one-stop shop for the show audio video pictures of johnny pictures of his career pictures of the boards that we talked about dtdpodcast.net that's where you go and you get hooked up with everything that's going on with the show and everything that's happening in the future also don't forget go buy our sponsor police coffee at policecoffee.com you know they're an officer-owned business they're dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends and they're shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned their coffee some of the best you'll find but keep in mind it also serves an important cause they give back to our community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell on the line of duty. And when you go to policecoffee.com and put your order in, don't forget the code DJK10 to get 10% off your order. Guys, thank you so much for coming by, Johnny. Thank you for telling your story, being vulnerable, and letting those people know that there is a brighter future. All they got to do is put some faith in someone around them. That's going to be the conversation for tonight. That's Johnny. I'm DJ. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later. Thank you, brother. God bless.